0: Episode 86.
1: This is the Business Generals Podcast. We chat with amazing entrepreneurs every single week to help you maximize your startup business ideas, take control of your personal finances, and get the most out of your professional career. Subscribe to the show and check out businessgenerals.com for full show notes, free tools, and killer resources to help you on your journey to maximizing your business dreams. And now, your host, Davis Mutabwa. Hey,
2: welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business General's Podcast where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs. I'm so excited that you've joined us here today. If you have not already done so, remember to click subscribe on your podcast player so that you do not miss an episode. This is Davis Mutabwa here, your host, Super, super excited to bring you our feature guest for today here on the Business Journals Podcast, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel, welcome to the Business Generals Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you for coming on. Actually, Daniel has risen really, really early to jump on this uh, podcast. So we're super excited to hear your story. So ladies and gentlemen, Daniel is a psychologist, got a PhD in psychology and behavioral finance. So he's an expert in those fields and he helps organizations understand the crossover between the mind and markets. And uh, he recently co-authored a book which is a best-selling uh, book on the New York Times, and it's called Personal Benchmark: Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management. And more more recent to that, he has actually just launched a book called The Laws of Wealth. And he is currently the president of Nocturne Capital. So it's an academia sort of beginning of the story, but um, he has done a lot of things in. Uh, in finance and psychology. So really excited to understand your story and to just bring out some of those inspiration points that somebody can learn from Daniel. So welcome to the show once again. Why don't you kick us off and um, let us know who is Daniel outside of business?
0: Uh, Outside of business, I have three kids that keep me very, very busy. I have an eight-year-old, soon to be four-year-old and a one-year-old. So that uh, that and running a small business will keep your life very Mm. rich uh, and very, very crazy. So um, yeah, spend a lot of time doing that. Big baseball fan, big independent film fan, uh, big fan of the city where I live, Atlanta, Georgia. So, uh, exploring those different facets of life keeps me very busy and very active.
2: That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great to hear. So, Atlanta, Georgia. How long have you been in Atlanta, Georgia?
0: Uh, two years This the second time. I grew up about a state over. Uh, And so in the southern U.S., Atlanta, Georgia is kind of our, our New York City. So I grew up in a small state of Alabama and moved to Atlanta about two years ago.
2: That's good. And um, let's talk business. How long have you been um, in business and are you full-time for yourself?
0: Yeah, almost, uh, almost 10 years now. And yes, yes, I am full-time. So almost 10 years now, just had a birthday yesterday. And so I, uh, my birthday is pretty consistent with when I started my business. I think birthdays offer uh-huh. time to reflect and uh, want to do something different. And so, yeah, I'm just celebrating a 10-year anniversary here.
2: Huge. Congratulations to you. Uh, Obviously, some ups and downs along the way. What are your um, core revenue streams at the moment in your business?
0: So, core revenue streams would be one, I do a lot of speaking. So, I think uh, some people don't understand how lucrative that can be. I certainly didn't when I first set out. Uh, Mm. I set out speaking as a way to market other facets of my business and soon found that speaking took on a life all its own. So do a great deal of speaking, speak at a professional conference about once a week at this point. I also manage money. Um, wow. So using the science of what's called behavioral finance, which you noted is sort of this, this intersection of psychology and investment decision making. So manage money uh, is another revenue stream. Um, I teach online courses. Um, There's only a couple of handfuls of experts in behavioral finance in the world. And so there's a lot of demand and not a whole lot of expertise. And so I teach a couple of courses that have been uh, nice money makers and then just do a little bit of uh, consulting. Some some folks just want uh, consultation, content development and different things around this uh, area of my expertise. And so I do a bit of that as well.
2: Well, that's 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 definitely multiple income streams, which is which is what we love to hear because that obviously helps you diversify and um, get a better lifestyle. Hopefully, so which one is your main mainstream of income? Is that speaking or is it something else?
0: Yeah, so right now it's speaking, and I'm I'm working hard to make money management my number one income stream. I'm looking for something that's scalable, and certainly managing assets fits that bill. Speaking is wonderful. It Pays well when you uh, when you work at it for a few years, but it is taxing with a with a young family. You know, you're you're on an airplane a lot, and your your income is limited mm. by you know the most you can charge times the number of times a year you're willing to get on an airplane. And so, I'm I'm looking to build out the the online courses and the money management piece to try and make that a bigger part of it because speaking has been great. It's been a great blessing, but it's also uh, a little taxing.
2: And how long have you been on the speaking circuit? The whole 10 years?
0: Yeah, the whole, the whole 10 years, really. I mean, it took off very quickly. And, you know, it's not a gift maybe I, I asked for or knew I had, but public speaking is something that most people hate doing. Yeah. And so if you, if you have a knack for it, you know, I mean, I've read research that says people are more scared of public speaking than they are of death. And so, I mean, if you have a knack for it and you have an expertise in a, a certain area, you can certainly do well in public speaking, and I, you know, I have a lot of friends who love the travel, uh, just because they're uh, maybe at a different point in their family life, or uh, they're they're wired differently than I am. So certainly, that's a that's a great business for a lot of people, and one that you can do very well at.
2: Okay, so that's really interesting, and I love to hear that that kind of um testimonial for for a field that somebody's in and that someone else might be looking to get into I definitely do some speaking and workshops, et cetera but it's uh it's nowhere near what you're doing, so I would love to dig in a little bit more into that story but Let's track a little bit backwards and understand you, you studied, um, you know, psychology and then you've ended up in finance and you become an entrepreneur. Walk us a little bit through that journey of how that whole, you know, sort of unfolded.
0: Yeah. So, my father is an investment manager and I think like most kids, I grew up, you know, looking to my mom and my dad to to try and see what they did professionally as a guide guidepost for my own life. Uh, so my dad, being an investment manager, that was always sort of at the forefront of my mind. But when I got to college and started taking my sort of uh, general education courses in psychology, I mean, I just I just fell in love. And so at some point, I went on a mission for my church. I took uh, I took two years off of college and went on a mission for my church. And so it was at that point, you know, helping people, teaching English, uh, you know, doing service. That I said, you know what, I really love people. I want to be of service. And psychology seems like a good way to do that professionally. So I ran with that um, for the next few years and, and even got sort of midway through my PhD program before I just really burned out. I burned out because the life of a clinical psychologist uh, is just very uh, emotionally tough. You know, you meet 40 or 50 hours a week with people who are often at the lowest point in their life. And it gives you a bit of a warped Uh, view on the world. And I'm glad there are people that do that important work, but I wasn't kind of cut out for it, I think. And so I I said, look, you know, two or three years Mm -hmm. into my PhD program, I said, look, I I love thinking about why people do the things that they do. But Mm -hmm. I don't know that I want to do it in a clinical setting in a medical setting. And so, I looked for business applications of the study of human behavior. And and since my dad was in this this world of investment management, he said, hey, um, you know, there's a lot of psychology in stocks. And I hadn't, uh, you know, previously given that much thought. But it was that conversation that led me down the road uh, that that led me to where I eventually am today.
2: That's amazing. I mean, I was looking at your bio and listening to some of your your presentations and must admit, I've looked at psychology as a field that I would love to study more from a performance management perspective or high performance psychology and translate that into entrepreneurship and business, but not really from behavioral finance. So, I'm, I'm, I'm quite intrigued and interested to, to learn a little bit more about it. But why did you do a PhD in the first place?
0: Um, because college was so much fun and I wasn't ready to grow up is part of, part of the answer. <laughs> Um, i knew I knew if you 're at least in the states a psychology bachelor 's degree you know a four year degree in psychology is going to get you next to nothing um, you know in terms of your professional life and so you know i was um, mm. I was twenty eight when I started my business i 'm thirty eight as of yesterday, but i was twenty eight when I started my business and had I not had my PhD, you know, no one would have hired me. I mean, you, you just don't hire a 28-year-old kid to be an expert consultant without some sort of advanced training. And so uh, it was a wise decision for me just because I, I knew I wanted to open those doors. And, you know, the funny thing is I don't do anything that I went to school for, not a thing. Like, I mean, nothing, nothing mm. you know, nothing nearly that I learned in school informs my day-to-day work and yet the, the degree has opened every door for me, so it's still useful. So life life is funny that way sometimes.
2: Mm. I mentor a lot of young people who are going through high school and getting into university. And in the recent past, I've always been encouraging people to say, get at least a master's degree if you're gonna study in a field, or get a PhD if you can last in the, the seven or eight years, because at least it will open doors for you. So I'm excited to hear what you're saying here. Um, Tell me a little bit more. What, what do you mean you don't use much of it, but it's open doors for you?
0: Yeah, so my PhD is in clinical psychology. I mean, I trained and spent thousands of hours of, you know, one-on-one counseling time learning how to be a therapist to people. And, you know, now I pick stocks for a living. And so, you know, in, so in some, in some respects, <laughs> um, you know, nearly nothing I learned is a part of my everyday life. But then in another respect, part of being a therapist, we used to watch tape like professional athletes. Like we would have our therapy sessions recorded and then our professors would sit down with us afterwards and watch the video of our hour-long sessions with our clients. And they would critique everything from our body language to our responses, you know, to the level of empathy we had. And at first, you know, at first as a student who had always kind of done well... This is a jarring experience, right? You're like, hey, you know, who, are, who the heck are you to, to tell me what to do and what do you know? But, but over time, you begin to become less defensive. You become more open to feedback. Um, you become more open-minded. And so all of those skills are just life skills. And so I, I feel like the life skills that I learned, uh, non-defensiveness, inquisitiveness, hard work, like all of these things that I learned in my PhD program, are very fundamental to this day, but the you know the the specific content knowledge that I learned is not not very much a part of my daily professional uh, comings
2: and goings. Very very interesting. Now take us a little bit forward. How did you acquire your first paying customer? Was that a speaking gig? or Was that a consulting gig?
0: So uh, my first paying client, I had a job right out of college for about a year and a half, uh, and I found that I couldn't hack it. I, I you know I said, oh my gosh, I was working for a small consulting firm, and I. I said, man, I I am apparently an entrepreneur because I can't stand this, you know, having to be in my seat at eight o'clock and someone telling me when to come and go and what to wear and all of this. And so I quit that job in the in the throes of the recession here in the US. I mean, in, you know, the second worst economic downturn of in the history of the United States with a six month old baby, I quit my job because I just couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. And so my mm. first client, I, I had the sense to wait until I had a first client in the bag to jump. And so just through networking and adding value to relationships and that value came back to me, I was able to procure a first client before I jumped away from my full-time gig. And so that's, that's something I would recommend to every entrepreneur is the, the world of business ownership and the world of entrepreneurism, uh, entrepreneurialism goes a lot uh, more smoothly when you have sort of that anchor client. So, that's one thing that I did really well out of the
2: gate, I think. Mm. And what was that consulting? Was that picking stocks or was that something different?
0: No, that was uh, that was consulting and speaking and training.
2: Right. So, And what was your first standalone speaking engagement?
0: Oh, you know, I, I honestly don't even... I'm not even sure if I remember at this point because what I was doing... What I was doing was speaking at every like local business club or charitable organization that would have me for free and just just mm-hmm. as a way to to gain exposure for my brand and my name and then after a while I started getting people saying, "Hey, you're good. Um could we could we pay you to come to our organization and do this?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, sure." Um, you know, this had never been In my mind, this had never been an income stream, this speaking thing, which is funny now because it's the lion's share of how I make money today. Um, But yeah, so it it happened very organically just as a way to try and get in front of people because, again, no one wants to do it. And whereas you're going to have to pay a lot of money to sponsor a booth or to get your name, you know, printed somewhere in a a flyer or something for a business uh, get-together, nobody wants to speak, And so you can bypass that entirely, go straight to the front of the class uh, and not spend a dime, I found. And so I found it a very effective way to market my business and then eventually a nice revenue stream.
2: And what were your first sort of set of keynotes that you found were popular? What were you teaching?
0: So my first mistake was just doing whatever they asked me to do. So I I would get people who wanted highly, highly specific stuff. So they'd say, hey, we want a keynote on how do engineers in the southeastern U.S. make financial decisions? And you go, okay, well, sure, whatever, um, and, and try and put together this really mm-hmm. bespoke presentation. And so for a while there, um, I was just creating brand-new original content for every you know little one or $2,000 paying gig I was getting, and it just wore me down. So I was, I was doing all of this highly specific, highly targeted stuff uh, and I've since learned that if you have a handful or two handfuls of of presentations that speak to sort of broad overarching concepts, like I have, you know, one now on the 10 commandments of investor behavior, and it's, it's frankly something that everyone can use. And so when they come to you and say, hey, you know, um, we'd like a presentation, you go fantastic, I'd love to, I'm going to give you these four options and it actually makes their life easier like it makes both of your lives easier because for the event organizer they now have some guardrails and for you you don't have to come up with some brand new bespoke thing every time so that was an early mistake that i learned from quickly uh, because i was just worn out from creating brand new stuff every time
2: yeah and so how did you come up with you know, the top four keynotes that you have now? Is it just an amalgamation of all the topics people had asked you for based on feedback or how, especially someone wanting to start out in that sort of arena?
0: Yeah, so you you get a lot of feedback. I mean, there's certainly quite a bit of trial and error, Um, you know, but you also start to see which jokes land, which presentations go well, and, you know, less is more with these things I found. You know, I I started out, I remember I still have a copy of one of my first decks and it was for like a 45-minute presentation and it was like, I think like 72 slides or something. I mean, just, you know, a- absolutely ridiculous. Me trying to cram every bit of information uh, down their throat and, you know, I've since learned that, you know, adult learning theory teaches us that people are going to walk away with two or three you know two or three main points and so make those you know two to four points the the thrust of your presentation and build it around that and so people really like that just two to four sort of guided Mm -hmm. anchor points build up some interesting anecdotes and some interesting research around that and i think you're in business Uh, because at first i was trying to do far too much for sure
2: very good. Um, and what, what's, um, what was your growth strategy at the beginning? So you just continued to speak for free until you you, know, you stopped or you started charging and fill up all your calendar or did you start doing some other marketing things?
0: Yeah, to, to say that I had a growth strategy is probably generous. I, probably, I made enough mistakes and go, went, went hungry enough that I figured it out. So the biggest sort of strategic turning point for me was at first I was just doing I was doing everything. You know, people would want uh, talks on general psychology. I would do that. People would want talks on leadership and um, organizational development and management skills and time management. And I, yes, 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 I would do all of that. And I had this interest in behavioral finance, you know, this very fine point, this very specific application. But that was only a minority of the work that I was doing. And frankly, it sounds funny. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive to a lot of entrepreneurs, but my business really took off when I started saying no to most of the people that were approaching me. When I started saying no, I I, I found that my finance clients were paying me the best. Uh, I found that my finance clients were, frankly, the smartest. So I, I enjoyed working with them. They paid well. And so, so after a time, I just started saying no to everything that wasn't particular to that, to, to that world of finance and behavioral finance. And so my business, I mean, I 10X'd my business when I became an expert in one small area of the world and started saying no to, to all of these other claims that were coming in. And frankly, that's sort of, ter- that's, that's sort of terrifying at first but it's a true principle it's one that others have talked about and it's one that i lived firsthand that that niches make riches and the the minute i started saying no is when the universe started saying yes to my bank account <laughs>
2: so what what actually happened there because you 're right you 're not the first person who has actually shared this on this show. you know I had another guest who was saying they were in social media, and they finally said oh, right i 'm going to focus on linkedin i 'm going to become the LinkedIn expert and as soon as they did that, they quickly rose up the ladder of being a thought leader in the LinkedIn space, and suddenly everybody was calling them they were ranking on Google. So what happened for you? How did that manifest itself because obviously you 've got maybe ten people calling you and you 're saying no to seven and maybe yes to three and and, you know, but then you still grow. What happened? How do you think that evolved?
0: Yeah, you you always have to do this. You know, I feel like I listen to a lot of business podcasts like this one. And, you know, you hear these stories and it just sounds too easy in, in retrospect. And so, I don't want to give that, you know, give that impression. I mean, I, I stepped it off. You know, I mean, I have I have young children. I have young children. I didn't just suddenly wake up one day and say, you know, forget mm. it. I'm not going to do your, <laughs> you know, your silly event. Um, I, I stepped it <laughs> off. I began my marketing and branding efforts took on more of this niche. I proactively approached more people in that space. And as I was able to add more clients in the finance space, I began to gradually, mm-hmm. um, you know, let go of my other clients. It wasn't this, you know, I was, I've never been reckless about any of these things. Um, and I don't think that recklessness, as, as sexy as it may sound and as, as cool a story as it might make, Still, I think that uh, a gradual process is, is sensible, and that's certainly what I did. I, I gradually stepped up my marketing and branding efforts within that niche, and I gradually stepped off my other clients. And then, you know, I had another transformative experience. I was, I was speaking for about two or two or $3,000 an event at this, at this time, which, you know, is not bad, but um, wasn't where I wanted to be. And I had someone come up to me after an event and he said, hey, I wish we could hire you more, but the, the home office, like headquarters, thinks you stink. And I said, what? You know, and I, I'm getting off this stage, and I've just, in my mind, just crushed, just crushed it. Like, I just did a, a great job. And he said, well, you know, headquarters thinks you stink. And I said, what? You know, what in the world? And he said, well, your mm. prices are so low that when people who haven't met you see you on the price sheet, they just assume that you're no good because you're not, char- you're not charging enough. And so that day I tripled my prices and, um, you know, then people just begin to naturally fall away as you're able to, as you're able to raise your prices. You know, some people, Mm. you you don't have to tell them, no, they just, they just can't afford you anymore. And so that was, you know, again, like another interesting psychological concept is the way that price speaks to value. And I mean, I'm the same (laughs) idiot today that I was then. I just charge more, you know, and, and people think you're better as a result. It's a funny thing
2: that's very interesting i was listening to an interview with the founder of calendly and uh which is a tool that i use and he was saying you know as soon as they started charging um they could work out who was really going to stay and then they can value their feedback in terms of changing features on their software and their product and you know he was saying you know charge more and charge earlier in your in your startup phase so Obviously, you've you've tripled it in in one hit, and you know it worked worked well for you. But um, that's a that's a pretty good lesson. So once you did that, you've you've obviously now niched into financial services or behavioral finance. So help us understand what are the key things that you're teaching that people are calling you to come back and teach on.
0: So I teach a lot. Um, so just as sort of a, a high level introduction to behavioral finance, over the last thirty years, the say the U.S. stock market has given you about 10% a year uh, in returns. But I mean, of course, that's very lumpy. Some you know, some years it's up 30%, other years it's down 20%. Uh, but it's averaged right around 10% a year. Well, the average investor over that time has only gotten a little bit less than 5% um, because they get in and out of the market at all the wrong times, they get greedy, they get fearful, they get scared. And so a lot of the work that I do is working with uh, institutions, financial advisors and individuals to help them get that whole 10% or maybe even a little bit more and just try and take the emotion out of that process. You know, the U.S. has a a massive retirement crisis. People just are not ready. Um, And a lot of that has to do with investor psychology and the way that Everything we're asked to do in a financial market is sort of psychologically difficult. You know, we're asked to bear uncertainty. We're asked to take on risk. We're asked to delay current gratification for sort of a hypothesized rainy day. Uh, None of this stuff comes easy to the human mind. And so that's kind of what I try and help people do. Make fewer mistakes, hang on to more of their money.
2: That sounds very simple. If it was that simple, you wouldn't really have a job, would you? So what, what complicates it?
0: Uh, we we complicate it. So I I sat next to a woman on a plane recently, you know, on a lot of planes. And this woman says, Hey, you know, are you going home? Tell me about your work. And so, you know, I tell her what I do. And she goes, Wait a minute, you know, you, you went to eight years of college, so you could tell me to buy low and sell high. (laughs) And so it sounds it sounds very easy. But I mean, think about, you know, weight loss, think about weight loss, you really just need to you know, it's diet and exercise. You need your caloric intake to be, you know, lower, lower than your cal- caloric expenditure. And, I mean, that's not hard in theory, but I think m- many of us find it very hard in practice. And investing is the same way. And so my work is uh, it runs the gamut between education, write a bunch of books. Like you said, my new book's uh, The Laws of Wealth but, that I hope people will check out. But, you know, everything from education to trying to uh, design financial technologies that nudge people in real time to make better decisions Uh, all of this is part of it because we're just not wired for success in this respect just the same way that we're not wired to make great nutritional choices even though we know what to do
2: yeah now that's very interesting because i think part, part of the that analogy that you've given is around mentorship and coaching and accountability So, and that's one of the laws that you have articulated in your book. So, explain to us why that is a critical thing about investing and and becoming financially independent.
0: So, one of the, you know, the second chapter in my book is you you cannot do this alone. And so, what we find is the research shows that people who work with a financial advisor, numerous studies show that people who work with a financial advisor do about 3% better a year than those who do not and and when you ask people why that's the case most go oh well you know my fa- my financial advisor is helping me choose great stocks uh, and frankly that's just not the case the reason is on average that they've just kept you from making a handful of stupid decisions um over your lifetime they've they've kept you from making a number of catastrophic decisions and that drives that difference and it's a, it's a powerful difference you know if you look at a 30 year investment time horizon uh, an extra 3% a year will double your terminal wealth over that over that time. And so, yeah, uh, the biggest, you know, I make the case in Chapter 2 of the Laws of Wealth that the biggest benefit to working with a financial professional is not even that they uh, especially know what the heck they're talking about from, a, from an asset management and portfolio construction standpoint. It's just that they're mm-hmm. going to be a coach and a mentor, as you've said, to keep you from making the, that handful of bad decisions.
2: And do you find that this helps your your clients in that way? Or So when they're about, you know, they're getting freaked out and the stock market has crashed, what do you tell them to help them?
0: Yeah, so one of the reasons why I think this mentorship is so important and why I think financial technology is so important, primarily in the future, is because education is a poor predictor of behavior when it comes to investing. So we have research now that shows that people lose 13% of their IQ when they're under financial stress. And so even if you know all of the all of the right things to do, I mean some people don't have an extra 13% to give, right? And so, you know, even even if you know everything you're <laughs> supposed to be doing in a panicked moment, you're you're still prone to make the wrong decision. So you need that relational support in the moment, right? You need that support in the moment. You need that that nudge in the moment to do the right thing. Because, you know, when I'm walking through the airport after a long trip and I'm exhausted and I'm just beat and I'm hungry, if I choose a cinnamon roll over a salad, it's not because I think that the cinnamon roll is healthier. It's not because I think that it's the right choice. It's just because life has worn me down. (laughs) Life has worn me down and stress has worn me down to the point that I'm just going to do what feels good. And investors are the same yeah. way. I mean, they just, uh, it's not that they think what they're doing is rational or in their long-term best interest. They're just freaked out and they don't care in the moment. And so that, that relationship becomes absolutely imperative. And, and no amount of education, frankly, can take the place of that real-time intervention from a trusted friend.
2: What about the notion of saving your way to wealth? How do you tackle that in your book, um, in the sense of how can somebody become a better saver? And actually, do you have any views on can you save your way to become wealthy, or do you have to invest as well?
0: Um, you, you have to invest as well. And so one of the the very first thing, in fact, that I talk about in the book is this this paradox. And I say, look, you know, the average the average wage in America is something like fifty thousand dollars. And I say, you know, let's say you make twice that. Let's say you make a hundred, a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you save ten percent a year for for thirty years. Well, now you've saved three hundred thousand dollars. If you're extremely regimented, you know, if you have a great job and you're extremely regimented, you save three hundred thousand dollars. Well, the average American spends two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on medical expenses in retirement. So forget it. I mean, and you know, that's that's not even that's not accounting for mm. inflation. I mean, that's not. You're not even close, and so you, you cannot save your way to wealth. I mean, saving is necessary but not sufficient. I mean, savings is, is a huge driver of your wealth compounding, of course, because you can't compound from zero. So that saving that saving catalyzes the process, But saving in and mm. of itself is just simply not not sufficient, because you got to think if all you're doing is saving cash, you know, historically, you're losing three percent a year to inflation so basically you're running in quicksand if all you're doing is saving without investing so it's necessary but it's not sufficient to build wealth
2: and and how do you find people can improve their saving habits what are some of the hacks that you've identified from your research
0: so the two uh and these these hacks just won a nobel prize so they're not mine but they're um a a gentleman named richard Thaler basically came up with these ideas of uh, auto withdrawal and auto escalation for savings. And so because he's done this, he's increased the, the amount of retirement savings in the U.S. by hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars by these two simple hacks. Wow. So Thaler's observation was, look, um, people are lazy, right? <laughs> people are lazy. So if you, if you set a process in place, good or mm. bad, we have a status quo bias and we're unlikely to mess with it. So let's just set the the good behavior as the status quo, and then people are unlikely to mess with it because they're lazy and they're prone to stick with what what works. And so what he de- did was he suggested uh, auto withdrawal. So rather than trying to have this conversation with yourself every month, do I you know do I or don't I save? You just automate that process. It's like you never see it, and then you auto escalate it with every raise. So every time you're um, your salary increases, you have a commensurate bump in your savings rate and you just automate that process, you know, when you're 22 years old and then look, you know, lo and behold, 40 years down the road and you've been saving and you didn't even know it. So, you know, the genius of Dr. Thaler's recommendation is that he takes this seemingly negative part of human behavior, which is our our proneness to stick with the status quo and he turned it on his head in a way that's been enormously beneficial to savers.
2: And so, basically, to to cut it in a, a different way, you're saying, you know, nominate a percentage of, let's say, the 10% example you gave, you're saving 10% or maybe it could be 5% of whatever your earnings are. And when your earnings go up, obviously, the dollar amount goes up, but your percentage kind of stays the same. Is that is that what you're saying in a nutshell?
0: Yeah, that, that is. And then the, the second piece is that auto escalation so that when you get a raise, you know, even if it's just a cost of living adjustment or all the way up to like a significant raise, you know, you you pre-commit to say, "Hey, when my salary goes from whatever fifty thousand to seventy-five thousand, I'm going to go from saving ten percent to saving fifteen percent." Because the the tricky thing about um, mm-hmm. human psychology, we have something that psychologists refer to as the hedonic treadmill, which basically says that whatever you make, you're going to spin to that level, <laughs> and it's not going to necessarily feel like more. You know, mm. um, you know, wealthy people don't consider themselves wealthy a lot of times because it just becomes the new normal you know a big house and a fancy car and private school or whatever kind of becomes the new normal for you and so rather than waiting to acclimate to that new normal commit today to the behavior that says when i make more i'm going to save more because i promise you when you get to that new number you're not going to feel like you have lots of extra money you're going to find places to put it um, and I think any of us that have that have had some modicum yeah. of success over our careers have, have had that experience of saying, wow, I make, you know, make two times as much as I did, uh, you know, whatever, 20 years ago. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like a whole lot more, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we're just living up to that new standard.
2: No, that's to- totally true. And um, I really appreciate you sharing that. I can tell that you've obviously done lot, lots of speaking and I was, just, I was just checking in the background thinking, I can see why people pay him good money because, you know, you, you bring out the, the name of that principle of the hedonic, whatever you call it, and people are like, yeah, I'm ready to pay <laughs> this guy some money. Although we already Big know. Big words.
0: <laughs> Big words. That'll get you paid. Yeah.
2: Big words. <laughs> uh, Daniel, this is good. Um, hey, what about, um, you know, fear of failure? Do you ever, have you ever been in a position in your business, you know, in the last 10 years or maybe even in the more recent times where you feel like, I just want to go and work for somebody. I could probably get a, a very decent pay at my level rather than trying to continue to build my business. I don't know. all,
0: all the time, like <laughs> all the time, <laughs> I, all the time I, I have this fear. I mean, very, very regularly. And, you know, I just have to go back to a couple of things, you know, I I have these fears. And I mean, I've even gone down that path, I've even applied for jobs and interviewed and things. And I have to remind myself of of two Mm. things, you know, the first is, I have to remind myself of how unhappy I was, when I did work for someone. And it wasn't (laughs) that it was such a terrible job, it was just such a mismatch for my personality. So I have to remind myself, put myself back in that place. And then the other thing is you know what what's ultimately led me to never take another job is just no one will pay you what you're worth. I mean, if you're able to stick with it, um, there is no ceiling to what you can make and the kind of freedom uh, intellectual and creative freedom you can enjoy as an entrepreneur and, and get paid handsomely for it. Part of the reason I've never taken another job is because no one can meet what I make on my own and so there are pains of course that go along with the the stress of um uh, of owning your own business but I think that the ro- rewards far exceed the pains and I think we just need to create communities like the one that you're creating here to support and uplift one another because it's a it's a journey that that pays dividends personally professionally spiritually mentally uh if we can learn to hang on
2: <laughs> Amen to that brother um, let me ask you about the reach of your, your business at the moment, you know, so how do you, how do you measure your reach? You know, maybe you can share in terms of, um, I don't know, number of gigs you're doing or the revenue that you're, you're generating or targeting or number of lives that you've impacted or number of books that you have selling. Just give us a sense of what your reach is at the moment.
0: It's interesting for me because books, writing books is one of the worst paying things you could ever do. And yet... And yet that is absolutely how I measure my reach. I'm I'm not proud to tell you that I check my Amazon sales rank every day. I mean, every day. In fact, it's kind of this ritual I check it right before I put my kids to bed. Um just so I ruin my day right when I'm about to have the sweet my sweetest best moment of the day. I make sure to ruin my day. I'm a sadist that you know, glutton for punishment. But yeah, so books constitute a fraction of my, you know, my income. And yet I'm so proud of them. And, you know, my my newest book, The Laws of Wealth, just got nice. named the best investment book of the year. And I was so proud about that, even though it's going to be, I mean, something in the ballpark of like 3% mm. of my, you know, earning for the year. Um, and And that's a successful book. I mean, that's a book that's been translated yeah. into a number of languages and has done very well. But that's, you know, still... That is how I keep score. Um, You know, in addition to just, of course, uh, revenue, um, those book sales and those book, yeah, the book sales, the book reach is absolutely how I personally keep score.
2: Now let me let me just quantify or put some quantum to to the industry of speaking. I know it can be a difficult field, but I've interviewed, you know, speakers who've, you know, been at it for a long time and they easily generate, you know, revenue figures in um in the seven-figure realm. From your experience and your perspective, how realistic is is it for somebody who's getting started and say I'm just going to become a speaker and I'm just going to go hard at it? To, to reach you know multiple six figures and even even over seven figures.
0: So it's totally realistic. I'm in the multiple six figure realm with my own speaking, right? With the speaking pillar revenue mm. pillar. Would be in the multiple six figures, and so it's totally doable. But you're not going to get there overnight. So the the way that I think you have to do it is you have to build credibility doing things. Frankly, like having a PhD. I mean, that's you know the the hard work <laughs> of getting that degree is part you know part of why people hire me. Um, writing books mm-hmm. again, the books on their face not enormously profitable, but the books give me the credibility and the thought leadership. Um, to be a good speaker, I've given a number of TEDx talks. That's helped raise my profile. So it's a long road. I mean, you're you're not just going to jump out of the gate charging that kind of money. The reason I can charge more now than I could, you know, eight or nine years ago, is because now I'm a New York Times bestselling author. You know, now I have a brand. Now I've worked this all through social media. So um, yeah, it's it's totally doable. But you're going to have to work to perfect your craft and you're going to have to work to perfect your, your credibility too. Um, and it's, a, it's sort of a dual mandate. You have to get the word out, you have to build that brand, but you've got to show up with some substance too. You know, when you get hired, you've got to show up with some substance. And, you know, now I do effectively no marketing. You know, all of my speaking is just word of mouth. You just show up and you do a good job and you know that other people are going to hire you. So it's a good place to be, but it's a, you know, I'd be lying if you if I said you could get there overnight, but you can get there for sure.
2: I've heard that from other speakers saying, you know, every time you speak, you're hoping to get at least one or two requests to speak again at maybe a different event at a different place. And obviously, you are experiencing that. That's good testimony to that industry again. Um, but Daniel, for you, I know you've shared sort of two key, key moments in terms of a breakthrough time where you've been told you know your prices are too low basically and then you've worked out that you needed to niche down or niche down depending on where you come from but was there another key moment where you thought this this was the deal breaker to get me to where i am today being successful as a speaker as a consultant in this arena is there another key breakthrough moment or was it those two and other escalating ones that compounded
0: well it's interesting sort of my my biggest breakthrough moment i was trying to develop this this niche in behavioral finance And there were a couple of target clients I had, and I I felt like I could do a great job for them. And I was contacting them, and they were, frankly, kind of blowing me off. I mean, they just weren't responding to me. They weren't, uh, yeah, they just were sort of ignoring my emails. And so I got very frustrated, and I wrote an email to, to one of these individuals. And I said, look, I know you're busy. I know you get hit up all the time by people like me. I just want an hour of your time. Can you give me an hour of your time over lunch and I will fly up to where you're at. You know, it's like across the country. I'll fly across the country. I will on my on my own dime, I will meet with you and I will present to you and I think you're going to be blown away. And if you are, let's do business and if you're not, you'll never hear from me again. And so I said, you know, can, can you just give Mm -hmm. me your lunch? Like I'll pay for my hotel. I'll pay for my plane ticket, whatever. And so I think he smelled the desperation in my voice and said, you know, and said, yes, that's fine. And so I did this. And, you know, frankly the rest is history because this client was the one that opened the door for me and every subsequent opportunity I've gotten, I could draw a direct line to this first being given a chance. And so I think you've got to work extra hard to be given that first chance because once, once you're given a chance, if you do it right, you know, like you said, there's always one or two people in the audience who are willing to hire you. So, every future engagement becomes a sort of marketing enterprise unto itself. But for me, I just needed that first chance and I had to take, you know, for me, what was sort of a bold step to get there and that, that's made all the difference for me.
2: Yeah, I can imagine when you're starting out, you know, flying all the way up to some, some joint somewhere, you pay your own way, pay your own hotel. That's a pretty big investment. That, um, if you didn't land the dude, I probably had a bit of explaini- explaining to do to yourself on the way back, and maybe even to your family say, Why did you do all <laughs> that? Silly, silly movie. <laughs> um, no, that's great. I yeah. love that. I love that. Hey, uh, we're coming to the to the end of the show. I wanted to ask you, um you know, are there two books that have really been impactful for you on your entrepreneurial journey that you would love to share with our audience today?
0: Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, um, I have a ton of books. I have a a reading list that I've put together. So if you just Google Nocturne Capital reading list, that's all my favorite books. But to answer the the question, um, my my favorite book of all time is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. So I'm just a big believer uh, in putting purpose and meaning at the center of all business processes and so uh Victor Frankl's account of how he survived the Holocaust and how he came out not a broken man but a but a man filled with heart and meaning is I think to me the best book of all time so Man's Search for Meaning is certainly the the best sort of inspirational book I've ever read. And then just from a business perspective, a, a psychologist by the name of Daniel Kahneman uh, wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a uh, very uh, weighty read. I mean, it's very long, and it can be uh, a little bit uh, heavy, a little bit cerebral, but it is an excellent sort of introduction to behavioral economics and a lot of the work that I do. So, uh, the Victor Frankel on the inspiration front and Daniel Kahneman on the sort of blocking and tackling front.
2: Love that. And uh thank you for sharing that. We will link that up in the show notes. And by the way, for all our listeners, we're gonna prepare a special PDF highlight reel that is free for you to download. Just go to the to the um this address, businessgenerals.com forward slash Daniel C businessgeneralscom forward slash daniel c we'll summarize our conversation all the highlights and all the good takeaways from from our conversation with daniel and including those books and nocturne capital reading list we'll put all of that in there for you daniel for my last question before i do that i want to thank you for coming here on the show but actually before i forget what is the best way for people to connect with you and to grab um, a copy of your books
0: Yeah, so you can grab the Laws of Wealth on Amazon.com, probably the easiest way to grab that copy. I would love it if you'd take a look at that. Um, You can check out my firm at Nocturne Capital um, and reach me there through the contact form, or you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby.
2: Great. So Twitter, Nocturne Capital, or Amazon.com, make sure you grab a copy of, of the Laws of Wealth that is an amazing read. I've heard lots about it and I will be planning to get my, one for myself. Daniel, here's my last question. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, but when all is said and done, do you think about legacy? And if you do, what legacy do you want to leave and be remembered for and tell us why?
0: Um, legacy is all I think about. Um, it's, it's interesting. I was, born, I was born on the day that my grandfather died. So I named after my grandfather. I was born on the day he died. And so... Mm. I feel like I just came into the world with this this uh, realization that life is short. He was only forty three years old when he passed, mm-hmm. and so I, I came into the world with this realization that life is short. I was named after someone who had a short life. I look just like him, and so for me, legacy is a, is about two things. It, you know, the first is I want to leave my children with a, a a small financial legacy. And I'm I'm of the Warren Buffett school. You know, Buffett says you should leave your kids uh, enough money that they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I I believe that um, uh, money can be sort of a lubricant for having a, a fulfilling, enjoyable, enriching life. And I, I want to leave that kind of legacy. Uh, but more importantly, I want to leave an intellectual legacy. And that's why that's why I write. You know, writing doesn't pay me very well as I've as I've bemoaned earlier on this podcast. But it is absolutely the most fulfilling thing that I do and I think the thing that contributes the most to my legacy. So for me, books books are my legacy, I think.
2: Thank you so much. That that is really insightful. I'd never heard of that phrase about leaving them enough so they can do anything but not too much so that they'll do nothing that is amazing. And obviously the intellectual <laughs> capital that you can leave and invest into your children and the next generation. That is huge. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was Dr. Daniel Crosby. You can check him out at Nocturne Capital. Check out his book, amazon.com, and grab a copy. Remember to go to businessgenerals.com forward slash Daniel C and grab your free PDF highlight reel. If you love this episode, do leave us a review on iTunes. That will help us a great deal. And again, to connect with Daniel, you can reach him on Twitter or at Nocturne Capital. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the Business Generals podcast today and for sharing your story with us. For that, we are absolutely grateful you are a true Business General. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Business Generals podcast. Connect with us at businessgenerals.com and grab the full show notes and access a ton of free resources. Subscribe to the Business Generals podcast so that you do not miss an episode. And help us reach more people by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. We look forward to your company on our next episode. Until then, remember that you are a true Business General. The Business Generals podcast, helping you maximize your startup business ideas, take control of your personal finances, and get the most out of your professional career.